0: Hello, it's Antrice, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. Before I get going on this week's episode, I have to tell you there's so much going on behind the scenes that I just really need to tell you about because I think you'll be excited. I'm pretty excited. First off, we just finished an amazing online workshop with Dean Fisher, and the participants in that workshop created some amazing still life paintings. It was just so fun and just so fulfilling to see the massive growth that happened in the six weeks that we were all together. You can see some examples of the participants work on Instagram at Savvy Painter Podcast. And I also wanted to let you know that I will be teaching a workshop on values in April and registration is open now. So the reason I wanted to teach this course is because I've noticed that artists tend to look at paintings past and present and think things like, wow, I love the way that that artist turned the form on the far side of the cheek. I wish I knew exactly what color they used. So they go out on a hunt for the perfect pigment. They buy tons of colors trying to figure it out. What they don't realize oftentimes is that color can impact turning of the form, yes but it's the values that do the heavy lifting. You might even have heard that artist saying that values do all the work and colors get all the credit. Get the values right, and then you can use color temperature to make those delicious, subtle nuances in form. But if your values are off, I hate to break it to you, you'll never get there by changing the hue alone. So join me on this painting adventure. Registration is open now at SavvyPainter.com. Just click on the workshops. I am super excited to share my guest today, Mary Tonkin. We're going to just jump right into this episode because we had so much fun talking and it was so much fun to do this podcast live. So Mary Tonkin paints amazing landscapes from her home in Dandenong Ranges in Victoria, Australia. They are just delicious paintings. I don't know how else to describe them. It's like you're right there inside of the bush, inside of the forest, (laughs) looking at these just beautiful arrangements of leaves and fallen trunks and just all the things that we typically just walk right by. Mary gives us an up close and personal look at what she sees in and around her home. Okay, let's jump into this conversation. Here is Mary Tonkin. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for being on the Savvy Painter podcast with me and for joining me on this new venture here. Thank you so much for asking, Andres. So I would love to start off kind of just hearing about how you decided to make art your vocation
1: almost fell into it. I didn't have any family models or anything. And I just picked up a paintbrush in year ten, so I don't know whether that's fourth form for you, at about sixteen in high school. And it just felt instinctive as though I'd almost as though I'd done it before. I felt like I knew what to do with it. And yeah, just fell in love with it really. And I was doing a lot of science subjects and assuming I'd go on to do some kind of science at uni, but then just felt like I needed to do more visual arts. Did that and then actually got into visual arts so it was just an instinct. I just loved it and responded to it, and it was the thing I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. You paint large-scale landscape paintings on sites. How did you get into that genre?
1: Through undergrad at uni, I was painting portraits and still life things. So I did four years of a degree and an honours degree, and then I was doing some travelling, and I studied at the New York Studio School for a little bit, did a summer and Semester there, and I was <laughs> trying to stay sane and drawing a lot in Central Park, and it just felt wonderful to be outside. And you know, it was my way of coping with being in New York. I'm a shy person from a farm in the middle of bush, and uh, New York was quite difficult. <laughs> fabulous and stimulating, but just sitting in Central Park was just a bit of sanity. Yeah. And then when I came back, I was doing a master's degree, and I was painting portraits again. But I went to a trip to Central Australia and I was working outside there and I just hit home that it was where I felt most alive and most responsive. And I think that's really important to work out where you are most, where you're sort of, you most alive and responding to something and clearly <laughs> most excited about something. And being outside just seemed to make sense. So I started drawing outside for a long time before I worked out how to make sense of it in terms of painting. Does that make sense? I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. and. Just this idea of going from somewhere really remote into New York City, I can completely relate to that—the overstimulation and just how drastically different it is, and kind of needing to be able to ground yourself in any space yeah. that kind of feels a little bit like—like <laughs> like, I don't
1: know, home is it? There's, but there's no quiet there. There's no quiet or solitude. I didn't grow up in a particularly remote place. It's an hour out of Melbourne, which is a big city, but Mm -hmm. it's on a flower farm in the middle of Bush. And we grew up with no power, no electricity, and just quite
0: simply. And so, yeah, it was a big shock. Yeah. So you're, I mean, I'm so fascinated and enamored with your paintings. Like every time I see one, I just want to be, have my nose right up to it. And it's unfortunate that my views of your painting are on a computer screen. So I'm dying mm. to be able to see them in person. But for somebody who hasn't seen your work, how would you describe it? I usually just say it's figurative landscape painting. Painting that's not necessarily
1: using the local color. So drawing from the local color. I'm painting in the bush, on site, present
0: to the things, present to what I'm painting. I don't describe it very well, truth. So oh. <laughs> um <laughs> It's a, it's a terrible question. It's really mean to ask somebody like, please tell me, how do you yeah. describe your work? That's like one of the hardest yes. questions. I think that you can ask an artist. <laughs> it's like it's a tough one. <laughs> but it's, you know, to me, it's just like this intimate portrait of the plant and floor. Like it just, it feels so, it's landscape, but it just feels like so up close and personal and intimate. And the fact that it's so large scale just really allows you to get lost in it, I think, and allows you to really experience it as if you were in it. And I think that's, to me at least, where the scale of your work comes, is so important. Oh, That's good. That
1: sounds like it's um, communicating what I want it to do, which is, and it's not always large scale, I should say, anne It's uh, sometimes large scale, sometimes not. So that varies. It's really important to communicate that very powerful connection I have with the places I'm painting and the sense of being present to it. So celebrating it, you know, it's particularity so yeah. and being present wholly so who I am now and what mood and emotional state and mental state and all of that stuff I think you bring that stuff with you as an artist anyway so there's no point denying it or ignoring it and just try and just be present with whatever baggage <laughs> that is going on sometimes it's not good and just be present to the changes in the seasons and the growth and because I especially the big ones, the larger scale ones, I work over a long period of time. So things change and there's a great deal of time embedded in them too.
0: Yeah. And so how large are the large scale ones? The largest, silliest one is 180
1: centimetres by 118.9 metres. So nearly 19 metres. So that's like 60 feet, isn't
0: it? Yeah, a metre is like almost three feet I use my husband as my ruler. I know that he's 190 centimetres and that means he's six foot four, but (laughs) he's sort of like my measurement. Nice.
1: Yeah, (laughs) so I tend to work kind of, you know, just within a body scale, smaller things or in a scale it's where I'm immersed in it. So it's, you know, six by six or something bigger. So that I love working like that because you feel like you don't have that – I'm working, sorry, I should say in the bush, so I can't step back and see it while I'm working. I'm right – I stand in front of the easel and I can very rarely step back and see what I'm doing. Yeah. So I'll step into what I'm painting or step on something or there's growth all around me. So I'm immersed in the process of painting the thing. And so if it's a large scale particularly you there's something about letting go of the consciousness of making an image. You sort of just go into the process of it so you I suppose it's a meditative thing almost. There's some dangers of course because it means you lose the sense of what the how that mark relates to the whole or a consciousness of that. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? So when you're on a little thing, you're aware of how that mark relates to the whole thing because you're seeing it all the time. But if you're on a larger piece, then you sort of drop that and you're aware of how that mark relates to your experience of seeing those things Mm -hmm. and that form in that space. And that's very important for me, that how forms relate to where I'm standing and how they are to each other in space. So it's Mm
0: -hmm. just about
1: a kind of breathing, breathing of the space and drawing it in You're kind of, I don't know, not explaining very well. You're moving out into the landscape and it's sort of you're being in it and it's being in you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I
1: think think that's easier at that larger scale because you're not conscious of making decisions. Certainly take them back to the studio and do a lot of thinking there and apply bits of collage to think about whether the colour's right and, you know, do all sorts of tricks to work out what I'm doing in terms of a painting and the composition. But when you're there, you, if it's at those larger scale ones particularly, it's, you really are just in the flow of it.
0: How do you, as a painter, I'm having such a heart because your paintings are, to me, they are chaotic as nature is chaotic. <laughs> yeah. There's chaos and order. And yet there's such a strong flow throughout them. So as a painter, I'm just trying to imagine how you can possibly do that in the middle of the bush, on these paintings without, you know, like you can step back a little bit, but if you're in that environment, you can't get the long distance, as you were saying, like how do you know Mm. what's going on in your paintings? Yeah, I do a lot of drawings to
1: start with. So I should say I wander around a lot to work out where I'm, what the subject is going to be. So I'm working on my family's farm, the bush on the farm, which is, Roughly sixty acres of bush, so it's a fair area that I can wander around and might wander around for a couple of weeks and work out what I'm going to do, just doing little sketches or sometimes not drawing much, and then work a more detailed pencil drawing. And work out what the composition is going to be. Often fairly detailed, though sometimes not. Sometimes I just rip into something and work it out. I don't know. And <laughs> Teresa it just it seems to work. Our bush is particularly messy too. I was struck when I was in the States how ordered the bush, you know, your forests are. They're not bush, they're forests. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly where I am, it's wet sclerophyll bush, wet eucalypt bush, and it's very dense and messy and glorious.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, if I had to guess, I would guess that you must have the most amazing sort of visual memory for what's happening in the bush, in the forest, and that you just have so much reserves to draw from that you don't need to do the structure like I would for example
1: (laughs) well I think I'm thinking of the structure a lot while I'm drawing and then each time I take it back to the studio I'm assessing it and I change things around I can change the whole format if I need to Uh, certainly on the smaller scale thing so if I was working a larger painting I tend to do a smaller scale study and they're painted on primed but unstretched canvas so I'm changing where this the whole proportions of it and the edges the entire time so working out you know work compositionally where things are yeah so that's usually quite settled before I get to a larger one
0: and how do you choose your motif when you're I have all these Wandering assumptions around. and all these imaginations of <laughs> what doing. Mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I mean I'm just so curious like what is like when you are going to start a painting could you describe that like what happens in your mind so it was variable
1: sometimes I have a clear idea of I want to paint quite singular form, but that's rarer. Generally, I just wander around and something strikes me as being more interesting. So it engages more deeply for some reason. And I think that's quite often instinctive. And I just let that be. I don't sort of question it too much because I think Mm -hmm. that if you can bring sort of almost too much consciousness to it and make it too self-conscious. So I like to just draw and let it be. And something's bugging me or I'm going back to something or it's just exciting and I think that's it. I just, oh, that's what I want to paint. And then I'll make drawings, sometimes a little study, and quite often maybe a third of them I'll chuck away because I'll be painting it and then it's just I've lost interest. So there's something I thought was interesting and it might have just been a shift of light or a relationship of forms and it doesn't hold enough interest as I'm working on it, so unless it's engaging it's, I think it really, it's, it's a, some kind of subconscious level or something that I want, some content that I want to convey. So something about how I'm feeling or how I'm relating to those forms or the world at the time. Mm. I suppose I'm finding a subject that's a vehicle for that. And some things you think might be, that
0: just aren't. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about what you said about the intuition versus what's happening in your head, like overthinking it. I think that's a very common... <laughs> practice a common thing for artists to struggle with is yeah. allowing that inner voice to have its say and to speak up and to not let your analytical side destroy it <laughs> or to think too much you know, to overthink it's, things. Yeah, yeah, that's easy. And
1: yeah. your anxieties and yeah. So doing large recent large project I've been wanting to do for a long time and I You've just at some stage got to stop yourself worrying about something and just launch into it if it's something you need to do.
0: Yeah.
1: But probably more particularly, I think we give precedence in our culture to intellectualize, intellectual thoughts or cool thinking. We don't think enough or allow enough precedence for the intelligence in our body, our somatic intelligence. So I think that if you're just allowing yourself to be in a moment, your body and your subconscious can tell you things that you just need to I think it's quite difficult for us culturally to just listen to. Mm -hmm. And I think drawing certainly is a way into that for me.
0: Yeah. Has it always been that way for you? Yeah, probably. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think the first drawing I remember making was in response to some bushfires we had here when I was maybe 10. Just a drawing of a little watercolour, I think, before and after the fires. So just processing, really, dealing with what had happened to the bush. And, yeah, just I didn't – no one told me to do it. I just – found some way of making sense of it. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, when I invited you to come on to the podcast and talk with me, you mentioned that, you know, you'd just come out of quarantine. And so you were excited to get back out into the bush. And I'm really curious, you know, how, I mean, this, it's like, I have to remember that those massive star- fires in Australia happened in 2020. Like that was also part yeah. of 2020, that it wasn't just COVID. So I, it's kind of like an all-encompassing question of with those fires and with COVID and not, I'm assuming, not being able to go out to the places that you had normally been able to go to. How did you cope with that? Like, what did you do? Well, the fires weren't an issue for us
1: here. They were more along the eastern coast, so from Sydney right down to East Gippsland, so north, far east from us, not um, in my area. So mm-hmm. you watch it and get worried about it, but it wasn't affecting us physically. directly. But COVID... Yeah, with the lockdowns, we're pretty intense lockdowns here in Melbourne and homeschooling. So that was interesting. So I would just get the kids to do their work in the morning and then drag them to the bush in the afternoon. So I have, I did get some work done, not lots and not in a concentrated fashion with kids with me, but I've got 10-year-old twins. so And they're wonderful, curious kids. So they would just be bird watching and we've got what birds in the bush and they're watching them a lot and sitting, reading or climbing trees and romping around. So kind of ideal for them to manage their stress and for me to get a couple of hours to not go insane. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was a tricky year. And the last lockdown was just a brief five-day thing because we had another outbreak from quarantine, but we've
0: been very lucky in Melbourne and managed yeah. it really well. Yeah. Yeah. Australia's managed to do very well with that. Well, I don't know if anyone can say very well with it, but better <laughs> than, the, than a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, with regards to the fires there in Australia, I was just wondering if that... Just the scale of that, what was happening, impacted your thoughts about your own work?
1: Probably not hugely. You just get a a renewed, (laughs) it reinforces the sense of fragility of the environment and the, well, I'm very concerned environmentally about what we've done to the world. And it really reinforces all of that, just what a terrible state the world's in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sort of heartbreaking. So I suppose in that sense, it's affecting my work because I feel like there's a renewed sense of urgency to record what we have. I don't know that that's going to be available for my kids or their kids. So there's a deeper intensity about recording
0: that and living it. Mm -hmm. Your work, I kind of like what's coming into my mind. (laughs) So my instinct is you take a lot of chances, it seems like with your color, like your colors are just amazing. Like that's more, like, I have no like, they're awe inspiring. <laughs> they're beyond words. But the color palette that you use and the choices that you make with color, can you talk a little bit about that process for you? Like, do you kind of start with a palette in mind and then work your way out from there? Or are, how are you deciding on your color choices? Because they're I mean, there's they're accurate, but they're not like unless like the bush in Australia is not at all what I <laughs> what I expect it to be. <laughs> it's, it's not local color entries. It's not, not local color. Mean? It's not like the color of the actual well, well foliage that we're rarely. seeing.
1: But I think it's actually difficult to make forms sit in space with the local color, just the local color alone. But not only that, it doesn't convey enough for me the experience of being there or that whole. Sensual envelope that you have when you're in a place. So it doesn't convey anything of your sense of what it's like to be in that place and stand before those forms, the smells and the sounds. And I don't see why painting couldn't or shouldn't be loaded with those sensations. So you want colour to be a poetic or metaphoric vehicle for all of that experience. So I think that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> that I do it is another matter. And how I make those choices is variable. So sometimes I'll have a sense that I want to make a certain coloured painting or have a certain kind of tonal range. But mostly it, when I'm drawing, that process implies what that palette might be. So that And that's to do with what content or feeling I think it, I'm trying to generate. And sometimes I just, it can be, I can't control it. I went through a period of sort of grief around infertility, which obviously got resolved. But through that period, I about a year, I was just making quite dark paintings and trying really hard not to, but they ended all up all ended up being quite grey or restrained black palettes. I just I couldn't make a painting work that didn't have that palette, so I just had to do it. And, yeah, so it, it's just, I think, just quite instinctive response driving those colour choices. Yeah, I worry about it whether I'm being, you said I was being quite interesting in the colour, I wonder whether I am sometimes or whether I'm just
0: repeating myself. So, yeah, I question it a lot. I saw you posted something the other day on Instagram about, you know, part of your process and using... Collage and using paper as a way to, when you come back to your studio, to sort of do some color tests and see how that felt within the painting. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it affects your color decisions? Yeah, sure. I was thinking it's a bit
1: like, you know, what Bonnard said about Cezanne. Bonnard said he didn't feel strong enough to paint outside because he was overwhelmed by the, I think he meant the local color or the way things are. And he thought Cezanne was very strong because he could just paint the way things were or <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's a bit of wanting the best of bit of both worlds. So you're there and you're responding. But when I take it back to the studio, I want to be able to think about what colours might be appropriate to how that felt and what it needs compositionally as well. So I've got a heap of collage paper that I might rip bits off that are just different colour choice. And sometimes you just don't have, I think what I was on that too, is sometimes you don't have the imagination to think about what that colour could be when you're overwhelmed by the presence of that green thing. Yeah. So if you've got a, at the moment I'm making some painting about six by seven foot of bracken, so it's grown really beautifully in the wet summer and it's over my head. And there's a form in the front that I was thinking about, it's, you know, it's again, it's greenish, bluish green and it's catching the light and throughout the rest of the painting they're blues and teals and I'm thinking that that probably needs to be a lemony or some other colour because it's I want it to come forward but also it's here when I'm painting it, it's foot away from me. So it's right up in my space and I need to convey that feeling that it's almost melting into my field of vision or melting into my body. And so, you know, you have all that sensation and understanding out there. But when you come back to the studio, you think, oh, could I use, you you know, you can, I'm not very good at imagining out there maybe, or it's easier sometimes to have that distance to think, oh, well, maybe that colour would work. So I'd rip it up and stick it on the wet paint, take it out. And then quite often that doesn't actually hold up and be a decision, but it sort of jogged my process or jogged a way of thinking about it colors yeah it's useful to have that distance yeah
0: yeah and when you're working on these paintings I'm laughing at myself because like the question I want to ask is how long does it take you and it's always so funny when people how long does it take you to do that painting but I think what the reason I'm so curious about that is just this process of being out in the bush coming back into the studio making decisions about the painting and then going back out there while there is nature happening, like decay and animals Mm. passing through and nothing is, like I can't imagine anything is the same when you get back the next day. So I'm like trying to wrap my head around that and I'm kind of just like, wow, that's like such an amazing challenge. It's interesting at times. (laughs) You should hear me scream sometimes. Sometimes if there's been a deer or
1: wallabies through the bush and chewed something, I've been painting this. (laughs) be problematic mostly i think this because it's private land i can leave my easel and paints out there and i think the smell of the oil paint keeps most things away oh that's so interesting uh, so it tends to be not too many changes so sometimes you have just a tree fall through <laughs> things but that so a six by seven foot painting that i'm working on will probably be six weeks yeah so just going back each day and different weathers and not rain but yeah different light and over the course of the day
0: yeah so, when there's those types of changes, do you just incorporate it or do you wait for it to go like weather? How do you I, how do you I tend incorporate to, that? Yeah, over the process of that painting, uh, it tends to just settle down which
1: parts of the painting use which light. So, it amalgamates the light across the day. I'm not Monet with the kids bringing out the paintings for different times of day. It's so the one most recent one I've sort of finished, the right panel is the same size, is a morning light and the other sides are afternoon light, but there's variable bits within that. So it just you work out over time how to amalgamate those bits of light and weather changes. And so some bits might be when it's very sunny or when it's overcast and just use that part of the experience to mesh into the painting. It becomes an amalgam of experience over time essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, entries.
0: <laughs> no, I,
1: I like that. It takes a long time because obviously the light's changing, the weather's changing. I'm making decisions that are changing. How I'm feeling is changing. So, you know, I'm not fast.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining even if I wanted to leave my palette out in my backyard, my dogs would eat it. So <laughs> oh, yeah. They wouldn't be deterred by the smell of oil paints. So they'd probably just go, hmm,
1: yeah, Yeah, it's a box because the rats eat it too. <laughs> the wild, the native rats chew the paint, sadly. So I have to make sure it's sealed.
0: What is your setup like when you're out there?
1: So I've made an aluminium easel, which is highly adjustable. So I made it particularly for a site where I wanted to stand on a log, which was four foot off the ground so I can go over something like that or it's quite large and adjustable. And then I have just an old baby change table at the moment that is the resting spot for the palette and a plastic tub of paints and mediums. Just leave all that out and take the paint bag with the brushes and stuff back to the studio and the paintings.
0: And then for the – I'm imagining then for the – Canvases themselves. Do you paint on canvas, or do you said you paint on yes. some of your linen. Stretch linen? Yeah,
1: stretched linen. Yeah. Well, the larger ones are stretched linen, and the others are unstretched on a board or something.
0: And then you have guy lines, and like, how do you keep that well, from sailing away? No, not don't
1: tend to because it's quite sheltered bush. So it's the bush here that I'm working in is a very high canopy bush and very dense, wet. And very rarely we too windy. So quite often I'll have to, if it's windy, I've got little clamp things that I clamp it to the easel. But I, it's not like the first spot I worked <laughs> where it'd be Gorge, west of Melbourne, where it was very windy and you'd have to guy rope things down to stop the easel and the paintings blowing over. Yeah. <laughs> but here, I happily don't have that problem. Yeah, you're in like almost the like- easiest place in the world. I'm sure to work. I don't have <laughs> I have snakes to worry about, but you know, there's no animals that are going to kill me or people that are going to kill me. It's just safe and lovely. Then all you I have, have to
0: worry story. about is the snakes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what do you I feel like? I'm just I'll stop with the questions about like what's the paint setup and how do you do this and how do you? Do that? <laughs> That's alright. Ask what's interesting. It yeah, I think for artists it is really interesting and. One of the questions I get a lot from artists is artists who are working at, you know, it's interesting, it doesn't matter what the scale is, but they always say like, I want to work bigger, right? (laughs) So bigger is all relative to where you are now, right? Because I've seen people who said that, like, oh, I want to work bigger. And I ask them what that means. And they're like, yeah, like, you know, 12 by, you know, like this size. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) But your scale to me is bigger. So (laughs) I'm like, that's just... Well, I, I think you need to think a level. Yeah, you need to ask yourself why. Like,
1: what's the point? Because I don't think work necessarily needs to be bigger. For me, it's useful because it allows me access. As I was saying, to I think the content of it. Just having that larger scale allows me to respond in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people don't. Necess- why make? I think they should be asking why
0: make it bigger, or is there any point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the reason for doing that? What does it give to the painting itself? Yeah. You mentioned Bonnard and you mentioned Monet also, but I'm kind of curious, like, who are the artists that you look at when you want to be inspired? Oh,
1: I love Bonnard.
0: Bonnard, Suzanne, Matisse,
1: Mirandi, and a whole lot of, there's so much great contemporary yeah. painting going on. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's plenty of it.
0: I find that some artists, when they get stuck, it's really helpful to look at other artists. And for others, it's the opposite, that looking at other artists makes them go kind of deeper inside. So I'm curious, like for you, when you get stuck, or do you get stuck? If you do, what is it that you, where do you go to for inspiration? It depends what you're getting stuck with.
1: Yeah. So what do you mean stuck with what?
0: I get stuck. I just,
1: (laughs) if I'm worried about whether I'm being boring with things I look after artists yeah stuck in what sense I think I need to ask entries
0: well I think the common areas that artists get stuck is let's see some artists get stuck with like I don't know what to paint today like or even if you have a series it's like okay I know I'm going to do this but I don't have a solid idea yet of what this in this context means if that is not horribly big So there's the kind of what to paint, and then there's the how to paint it. And then the third, these are like big buckets and very simplifying everything drastically. But and then the other one is, am I being derivative of myself? Am I doing the same thing over and over again?
1: Yeah, that's the one I would worry about, whether I'm being derivative of myself. So then I would look at what's going on in, with contemporary artists, but also just the artists I love. So I might just look at the bookshelf. But generally speaking, if I'm not sure what I'm doing, I draw. I just draw and find where I am Just and just wander and draw or try a different medium, try some watercolor or some collage or just I've been doing some clay drawings. Play some clay drawings, um, what do you mean? Clay drawing, So just making, I suppose, what you call uh, shallow relief sculptures, but I call them drawings. They're just using paper clay to draw outside. So they're just like a new drawing medium. And so, yes, just draw and figure out what I want to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So simple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. But drawing is so fundamental and simple, but it allows you access to yourself and how you're responding to the world and what you're interested in. So it's I would just say draw and I would say that for anyone starting just draw for years until you know what it is you want to do and say and you can find who you are when I was teaching drawing it's amazing how it allows students access to their deeper selves and who they are and how they are in the world how they be in the world and how they take information in and make sense of
0: it yeah to me it's like it forces you to slow down and really look yeah and I think that, especially now, like the slowing down your brain, slowing down your thoughts and just being present with how exactly is that leaf curling over and that's the only thing that you're concerned about yeah. and getting yeah. that deep into it. And things like
1: where does, how do I see that form or how do I construct that form? What are my interests in terms of that? Am I like, is there a shape or the tone of it or? Like for me, intimacy is a huge precursor. I need things to be close, and a lot of people need things to be at a distance. So that all has meaning, and you can sort all that out through drawing. Yeah, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that. What You know, what strikes me about that is just how fortunate and unfortunate we are as artists that we get to really go that act, whether it's drawing or painting, of slowing down and becoming lost in a fingernail or the edge of a leaf or something, you know, like that small and that intimate and really seeing it. I don't think anyone else does that. I might be biased, but I really don't think, you know, I think it's really artists who take the time to really notice that and to look at nature and to look at other people if it's portraits, to look at somebody that closely I don't think we ever really get to do that. And it is an act of intimacy, like you're
1: saying. Yeah, and paying attention. It's a sort of meditative attention that's important.
0: I think uh, scientists
1: do it. Natural history scientists probably do it, just mm. in terms of when they're studying something, pay a lot of attention and be in a place and record things. It's a lot about curiosity too, isn't it? Just mm-hmm. being somewhere. Because there's no point drawing the leaf if you're not engaging with it curiously. It's about giving your attention in a curious, wholehearted fashion it's not just drawing that thing it's it's storing it as you say with attention and curiosity i think is important too
0: yeah very much so yeah. i think curiosity in the sense of yeah just being that slowness that sort of really being deliberate and slow with the decisions that you make on the canvas or on the paper and that the curiosity of not coming at it with the idea that you already know the answer you know, that you've, yeah. you've seen a leaf, so you know what that leaf looks like. Which I think can destroy a painting if you think you already know the answer before you start. Completely. Yeah. You just yeah. well, you're making an illustration, you're not necessarily making a painting. Do you see, you know, for yourself, do you find that there's a, a distinction in the approach of curiosity? Like I'm wondering if there's for you, when you think of going into a painting with curiosity. I wanna ask you what you mean that by that, because For that very reason that we just talked about, because I was just thinking right now, like, oh yeah, I know what she's talking about. And then I was like, do I? (laughs) Because I'm coming at it (laughs) thinking I know what, you know, what it means to be curious about an image or about a painting. But I don't know what you mean, Mary, when you get really curious about.
1: I think I was talking about what your analogy of drawing a leaf and looking at the edge of a leaf, that if you're going to do that, unless you're approaching it curiously, then there's no point. But it has more meaning if there's curiosity involved so that you're not just drawing your idea of that leaf, but you're drawing your questioning of how it comes into being for you. So how is it that that leaf is there? How is it that that extraordinary little edge sits in space like that? You know, Bring that kind of attentional attitude to it. And yes, I suppose that's what I'm doing in my work, that I'm trying to pay attention and understand the presence of all the individual forms as part of the whole image, which is an act of curiosity and reverence almost. A kind of, Mm -hmm. it's an homage or act of love actually to spend that time and paint those things. And I do love them. I love being there. So it's just part of it really. I think it's part of that curiosity. I think it's just part of that being present. I don't think you're present unless you're curious.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking, you know, for a lot of people who might, you know, love the forest or love the bush would go hiking through it and pass through and never see what you see.
1: Yeah, they don't spend a time in a place. If you're going back and back, then you're learning it in a different way. You're layering it and you're seeing the changes in the fungi and the bugs and the birds and really knowing it deeply. And, of course, in the same way you know where you're at deeply, you have that intimacy, you know, it goes back and forth.
0: From the time that you've spent in those environments, what have you learned through your curiosity? Like how have you changed by spending that much time in looking at those places? I've been learning a lot.
1: Even more recently, I'm getting much more curious about knowing the botanical names of things. Or I'm trying to make a biodiversity study of the bush, so understanding all the bugs and the fungi and the plants. The birds I've mostly known since I was a kid because I was a really keen bird watcher when I was a kid still learning more about which bird is making what call the honey just particularly it's taken me till this year to some of them because i haven't been able to see them and i've just worked in a couple of spots where they've been feeding in trees right near me so i could tell which was which and start to separate them and just telling the difference in the different species of ferns and things that i hadn't you know there's lots of ferns on the ground and big tree ferns and you can just tell if you're paying attention and you can see the different shapes of them just but you need to turn them over and look at the spore patterns and things to tell what species they are. So, just trying to learn about all that, yeah, a bit more. Well, my family were typical of most Australians. Just, well, maybe not. My dad was a horticulturalist, so my family are and very interested in exotic species, so things that are rare plants from all around the world, particularly bulbs. And but completely incurious about the Australian native flora and the flora just thought it was all boring rubbish. <laughs> and so we didn't grow up with a, he was an intensely curious person, but didn't imbue in us any desire to know more or name more what the native species were. And I've only recently been trying to educate myself because I'm woefully ignorant of a lot of them are. So that's been
0: lovely, really lovely. Yeah, you know, they've done so many studies on, I think now it seems like we're really seeing it with everybody being indoors so much more than they normally were, but the effect and the impact on the human mind from being outdoors versus being indoors and how much, well, in the most simplistic sense, how much happier we are when we're outside and when we're in nature and how it triggers different parts of your brain, like the curiosity, creative thinking, all of those things that we tend to want so much and we lose by being stuck indoors, especially, you know, if people... I'm thinking of New York, but people in large cities who don't get to see greenery too much. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, I was a little, I was like, wow, you know, like you study it so intensely. And I'm just wondering if that has, if you've felt any impact from that. Probably. I'd notice it more when I've lived in cities, how much I miss it.
1: And certainly I just feel like I, I know that I need it. I think you can. It's hard to know whether I'm just imposing my judgment because of my experience, but I think when I go to big cities or just go to Melbourne, you can see the difference in the way people interact. So we live here in an outer urban, very beautiful green neighbourhood, in the which is surrounded by national park. Really, there's a lot of national park around us. Very tall forest, and the people are and they're gardeners essentially <laughs> because they're larger blocks. But there's a friendliness and an openness that I think is part of that experience of just being more relaxed and alive and curious, as you say. And in Melbourne, there's a, as in Melbourne's a friendly city, I'm not saying that, but people don't make eye contact as you walk down the street. And that kind of very basic social interactions that I find quite difficult.
0: Yeah. So I
1: think, yes, at a very fundamental level, humans need that green interaction and it really deeply affects who they are to their core, but I think we ignore that in our culture. And I think a lot of people function in cities or towns without enough interaction with their natural environment.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'm curious if you have, like, I love to ask this question. Sometimes it just brings up really interesting stories, but like, what would you like, you know, when people see your work, what would you like them to experience something
1: akin to what I'm experiencing. So a sense of immersion, presence to the forms, kind of particularity of those forms, and something of a sensual, metaphoric understanding of them. Something sort of poetic, something poetic coming from it.
0: I want them to have a, paintings to have a presence that really pushes out and envelops people. Have there been like sort of reactions to your work? Have you seen people like looking at your work, experiencing something? And That you didn't expect? Yes. Some people just see it as painting and landscape and walk on. (laughs) And I
1: understand that. It annoys me, but I understand that. (laughs) And that's, I'm thinking of one particular person who is a curator, contemporary art curator, who just, you know, they put it in a box and think it's landscape and I'm not even going to, she wasn't even looking at it actually. So, you know, there's a spectrum. And other people that are very moved by it, which is terrific if it's having a, if people are responding and being moved by being in the, hopefully, feeling that they're in the presence of, I was going to say in the presence of Bush, but you can't really put them in the presence of Bush. You're putting them in the presence of something that is an experience of being there. So, yes, people have been moved by it, which is nice.
0: Yeah. It's always nice when you get to experience that, when you get to see people experience your work and have either a similar, have the response that you intended or something similar. And sometimes the experience is just completely unexpected and (laughs) hopefully in a good way. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I want to ask you this question. I haven't been asking this question lately, but it was one of my favorite questions. So, and it's also one of the questions that people go, Whew. but if you could own a piece of art by any living artist, what would it be or whose? I
1: would love a painting by Vincent Hawkins, who's a British painter, mm-hmm. abstract, or not particularly representational painter. Some things are, so there's some things that are, have some kind of basis in a form that you would recognize but essentially just really beautiful evocative mm-hmm. abstract paintings have a look look him up yeah <laughs> I, I yeah I will really and he plays with a lot of different things sometimes just bits of watercolor paper cut into shapes and there's just there's something about his work that really touches me that I find very moving so I would love one of his yeah
0: there's so many. Sorry. I know it's hard. And yeah, and so that's why it's another reason why I try to kind of constrain it to like a living artist and also just so we can all know more living artists and support more living artists. Yes. <laughs> I'm also curious, like for you, what is something that from the outside looks like you do very easily, but took you a long time to learn? Probably working out how to use color. So it, all
1: through undergrad, I was painting quite local color, right after up to honors. And then when I went to New York, that introduced me to, that New York Studio School painting introduced me to a way of thinking about colour and structuring colour. Essentially, it was just good painting education that I hadn't had. And then I just had to move past that, in a sense, and find out what I wanted to do with it. And so, and particularly in the landscape, I was working with very limited palette for a couple of years, or at least a year, probably two years, just to work out all that stuff you were talking about, how you structure something or, you know, just working out how to make a painting outside, how to be mm. outside and make. I would take out pre-mixed palette, a very very limited palette of five colours or
0: something to start with. I was going to ask you that. When you say a very limited palette, what is that? What colours did you take? Five?
1: Yeah, about that. I th- maybe five of black and white. I used, I think the first ones were raw umber, maybe a burnt sienna, a couple of or yellow and a white and a black. Just really simple colours. Now I use the full palette and they become quite limited colour range, but that's just because I'm making a painting and that's just the colours that's required. But it took me a long time to work out how to use colour in the landscape and make a <laughs> it's painting. hard. Yeah, yeah, and to make colour feel like it was responding to how I'm feeling. Yeah, I feel like I still struggle with that. It. Uh-huh. So...
0: No, I think that, you know, like sometimes there's something that we just get really excited about and can spend decades figuring out and learning and just obsessing over. I think as artists, we do that easily. And I think that's what makes us like special yeah. in the best possible way. <laughs> that curiosity and just willingness to be like, yeah, I'm going to just nerd on this for as long as it takes. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Something you have to know, yeah. Yeah, and you want, I think it's the pursuit of mastery. And I think that's what, you know, sets apart a lot of artists is just this, it's like a dog with a bone, really. It's like just as unwilling to let go, you know, of this idea or this like desire. It's an idea and a desire to really know something. And color is such a, I mean, you add one more, pigment into your paint box and the varieties you get are infinite so learning how to handle that control that and make it say what you want to say is yeah that's decades (laughs) easily yeah Yeah, my
1: teacher I had a fantastic teacher Jeff Dupre through in undergrad and just a great friend and he always says it takes 10 years at least from when you start painting to get a sense of how to use it how to be a how to paint at least 10 years yeah I think that's true
0: yeah 10 years if you're Mm. painting
1: (laughs) a lot all the time (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. a yeah. <laughs> painter, maybe fifty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it needs to be intense and daily. Yeah. What is your daily habit like, or do you have one? It's just changed with
1: kids. So getting them to school, and then I get to work, and I work all day, and then stop and pick them up. And as long as it's not raining, I'm working. And if it's raining, then I might be doing some things in the studio, or sometimes some ceramics, dealing with the housework. <laughs> boring crap and sometimes of a weekend if it's being wet during the week I can steal some time and do some work of a weekend but generally it's school hours (laughs) not enough
0: yeah so I'll ask two more questions and then we'll jump into the questions from the audience but yeah so my question would be like what what habit do you have that you think serves your painting the most what habit um, or character trait that might be a better
1: I've decided I'm quite good at compartmentalizing things (laughs) So I'm quite good at just shutting the cupboard and leaving the mess or, you know, just not dealing with other stuff other than the work I'm doing. I'm quite obsessive, I suppose. So I can just do what I need to do and ignore that thing that most normal people would deal with. So, you know, in recent times, I've just tidied my studio and took me a week because it's been a few years and just deeply cleaned it. So I think I'm good at just leaving something that doesn't actually need to be done and just getting on with the work so I think some people spend a lot of time just cleaning and procrastinating and messing about but I just because I have such a limited time I work and I think I'm quite good at that uh-huh. I've decided to, yeah
0: how like what's a good painting day for you how if you get x number of hours painting what's a good day for you
1: Oh, I'd like to I used to work from dawn till dusk. before the kids. I had long days. But now that at work at nine shortly after nine and have to leave at th- three ish just after three to pick them up. So it's really too short. Short, yeah. it would be better. A ten hour day. That'd be great. But, <laughs> uh,
0: Easily. Yeah. So questions from the audience are very much about about setup and how. So Donna's asking, what is the setup on the site? So you described the easel that you made yourself to solve a specific problem of getting over a log. Can you describe that for people so they can kind of get a visual almost of it? Yeah, sure. I think it's called angle. uh, It's like a square aluminum stuff that
1: I just bought from a big hardware store and made a frame that's maybe nine feet high, four foot wide, three or four foot wide, and then another bit of angle line that's the... Bit where the painting sits,
0: and that's so like like a, a. I don't want to say an A-frame like, easel. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's adjustable, and its legs. Can, I've got attachments for the legs, so it can be adjusted if it's uneven ground. And yeah, it's just a fully adjustable homemade dodgy easel.
0: Yeah. And then, how do you set? What's your palette like? Are you plastic, glass, wood person, or none of No, it's, so
1: it's like a wooden box that so that it can shut and uh, keep the rats out. it's Again, a homemade. Just how big is it? Probably in total a meter space. So it folds up and then opens out, and you've got. Is about that like to the
0: it. what do they call like a? Is it a French? I think they call it a French mistress. I'm not sure why, but it's like a box. Ooh.
1: Yeah, it's just a homemade box. Entries. It's just a, you know just bits of pine that are on a bit of board, and it's a box. You know, <laughs> it's a box. And, and just it can be a box. box oiled. Yeah. <laughs> And a plastic box to put the paints in so the rats don't eat it. And uh-huh. yeah, it's pretty simple. And the advantage is that I'm not carrying that back and forth. It, when I was working at Werribee Gorge in public space, then you're schlepping it all back and forth and that's hard work.
0: Yeah. It's heavy too. Yeah. It like it's heavy very fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hard enough to get the paintings in and out, let alone the materials. Yeah. And let's see, Meg was asking, do you generally know the scale before you start or do they grow organically?
1: I know this, I have to say I know the scale to start with roughly. So if I'm working on a small thing, I'm working on a stretched canvas, generally, sometimes stretched, but mostly unstretched tacked to a board and I work out where the edges are. So that's organic. The larger ones, I tend to know what the scale is beforehand. Because you've Um, done those smaller studies? Yes, or or just launch into it and I have adjusted larger scale ones by adding another panel or peeling the edge back and putting a bit more wood in or something so that can be quite organic too
0: and I think you just asked this Sean was asking if your paintings are stretched on canvas and that's kind of variable right yeah and you paint in sections somebody's asking Janet was asking if you paint in sections but it sounds like that's like as the painting needs that you're adding things in and taking them out
1: Yes. So I think she means by sections, whether you're working on one part, then I work across the whole probably, I assume. So if I'm working on a two panel thing like I am at the moment, it's a good example. It's a six by seven foot whole, but six by three and a half, two panels. And I would start with one in the morning, take the other one out generally around midday and bolt them together and work across it or just swap it over and have one. So sometimes I've got the whole thing. It's not necessarily useful because i can't see it (laughs) but i am working across the whole. i'm not like spencer or something where you're working or freud where they work in a little area then work out i do draw it in with paint and block it in and work i am conscious of the whole thing right from the start Some artists have that amazing capacity to just start somewhere and grow out across the surface. Just That boggles my mind.
0: Yeah, I've watched people paint like that and I am amazed. I'm in awe. But, yeah, I've seen people start with, like, you know, either if you're doing a portrait then, you know, a lot of people talk about, yeah, you just start with the eye and then once you get that correct, then you just measure everything against the eye. But I've also seen people do that with, you know, starting with a little tree way off in the distance and they're doing this massive landscape in my head Yeah.
1: Yeah, me too. Because how do you know where that is in relation to you or that form or, you know, just...
0: Yeah, but it's, I mean, that to me is like what's so interesting is that we all have like these ways of thinking about a painting and how we construct it. And I think like, at least for some of those people that paint that way that I've talked to, they're just like, yeah, well, I couldn't paint the way you do, you know? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess not. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder
1: if those people see differently or whether they have different wiring about how they take in visual information, actually.
0: I think so. I would imagine so because we, you know, I often wonder what, how, you know, there are certain foundational skills that we learn, whether it's in art school or through workshops. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the way that we end up painting. Like I've talked to, like, this is another one that just completely blows my mind and I've tried to do it and I last like about 30 seconds, but like, they, there's some artists who will mix all their paints ahead of time. Mm. So, they know all the colors, they've got them all mixed and prepped and then they start painting and for them, it's kind of like their concept is I do the hard work first, I mix all the colors and yeah. once those are all mixed, then I'm free to like make other decisions and free to paint as I go along and my that's another one that my head just explodes, like I just, I cannot wrap my head around it.
1: Yeah. I sort of understand that because I started like that when I was first painting with a very limited palette. I'd mix it up and take it out. It would save time as well. But, yeah, I can't. After a time it becomes restrictive, It's you can't respond and get a particular colour or a particular combination enough. Yeah, I would find that <laughs> difficult, yes. I suspect those people are making a kind of magic within that parameter. We're all setting up parameters for ourselves and little ways of working or yeah. fields in which we work and they're just working within that.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm really fascinated to with this misconception that if you know any artist, you can know most of the time, this is not true that artists are kind of flighty and organized. And you know, like, there's so many options. And there are but the way that we artists, I think, manage that is through like massive amounts of constraint, such as I'm going to use these five pigments or I'm going yes. to use this size, or I'm going to use this, you know, like there's something that we do that sort of is the constraint that focuses us so that we can get the work done because otherwise there's so many variables. Oh, completely, yeah. Just choice of medium
1: to start with.
0: Yeah. You could, yeah. There's so much to play with. <laughs> yes, it's such fun. It is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you just obsessively go down
0: one little narrow thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You follow that tunnel until there's nowhere else to go, and then you've like, yeah. or you you like exhausted your own. I keep using the word obsession, but it works. You've exhausted your own obsession with that idea, and then you go off. You go down another little rabbit hole, which is the fun part. So, last question for you, Mary. What have we not talked about that you would like people to know? No, I can't think of anything.
1: Else. <laughs> it is tricky, though, isn't it? Having a conversation about painting without. Being in front of it or, you know, for you to have a chance to see it even just.
0: Yeah. Tricky. It is. I think yeah. the trickiest part is that, I mean, it's the double-edged sword, right? We are so we have this other language that we speak, the visual language, <laughs> and then this is sort of forcing it into the verbal language, you know, in words. And mm. if there were words for everything, then I don't know if we would need to paint. We probably, I don't know. No. I think it's its own we language.
1: Yeah, so it's hard to verbalize. I always feel like I do such a poor job of it, really. Uh, you, know, you can't really get at what you mean with words.
0: But you did wonderful. And I really appreciate the time that you spent with us.
1: <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you, anne
0: Especially since I know how constrained your time is. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and to answer all of our questions and to go down the rabbit holes oh, with my me. Ple-
1: my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you, everybody who is out there watching this, this episode of Podcast Live, and especially Mary for jumping in on this new venture and saying like, okay, we're going to do this live. And she was like, okay. So I really appreciate your trusting me, Mary, with this, (laughs) and for coming on. It was fabulous. And I really enjoyed talking with you. And for those of you out there that are listening, the question I get most often is, will this be recorded? Do we get to listen to this later? and the answer is yes of course so this will be available as a podcast on savvypainter.com and then we have this video in our community mary thank you so much one more time thanks so much for having me Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Savvy Painter podcast with Mary Tonkin. You can see more of Mary's work in the show notes for this episode at SavvyPainter.com. Just click on the podcast tab and you can follow Mary on Instagram at Mary.Tonkin. You'll also find that link in the show notes too. This episode of the podcast was recorded live in the Savvy Painter community. If you have not joined yet, you are totally totally missing out on the fun. And we have some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks. You are not going to believe who's going to be on the show. I'm so, so excited. So if you want early access to the episodes and you want to be there live on the recordings, join us at community.savvypainter.com. And finally, don't forget registration for my values workshop is open now. Keep an eye out because we will also be opening registration for more workshops with artists like Ricky Mujica, Dean Fisher, he's back martin campos and stanley goldstein registration for these workshops is coming up very very soon so keep your eyes peeled and of course i will be telling you all about it that's it for this episode have a great week everybody and i will see you in the community